Morning, everyone. Uh, it's an enormous privilege uh, to be here this morning. Um, <clears throat> been on this stage before uh, on Friday nights back in the day. Uh, memories. Um, and it's pretty crazy, um, just the journey that, that Jesus has taken me on, that uh, I guess here I am today uh, speaking in front of all of you. Uh, what an enormous privilege. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, fantastic. So, anyways, uh, we had an interesting last couple weeks on the island, did we not? Can I get a woot woot? Yeah. Um, how many here experienced the consequences of the fantastic outage? Quite a few of us. Okay, so I'm going to do a little bit of whining here. Um, here's a map uh, the day after. Absolutely horrendous. 700,000 people lost power. Uh, Myself and, and my wonderful wife, Jessica, living out in Shemanus, had no power for 74 hours. And, uh, man, was, did that suck. Like, we're, we're sitting there uh, for the first day, and it's like, oh, this is kind of bad. And then, like, the second day, you're like, oh, this, this is pretty terrible. And then the third day, you realize that it's been, like, I don't know, two weeks since you showered last, or at least you smell like that. And uh, so we thought we had it bad, but my dear, dear parents, who are actually celebrating 29 years of marriage tomorrow, so that's exciting. Uh, my dear, dear parents uh, didn't have power till almost the end of Christmas Day. So that extra sucked. Uh, Salt Spring Island, uh, anyone from Salt Spring here today? Yeah, that's, it's coming on today. Finally, the whole island gets power today. That's like a week and a half. And then what's the Park Island? I haven't even heard of that, but it's coming back Monday. That's the last island to be affected by the power. Uh, this stuff really makes you think. Um, when you experience inconveniences like that, and especially inconveniences uh, that, that last a long time, um, it makes me reflect a little bit like how fortunate we are. Uh, where we live, um, how fortunate we are to have working power, running water, all that stuff every day. Um, but then you start to wonder, like, like, what kind of absolute terrifying animal would I become if I had no power for, like, longer than I had it? Um, and, and maybe some of us have had that experience as well. Like, sometimes it's, it's, it's a good idea to, to reflect on if, if our circumstances were different, if things were more challenging than they are right now, uh, how, how would we deal with the extreme discomfort? Has anyone ever heard the phrase, like, you squish the pea, you figure out what's inside, or something along those lines? Like, when the pea gets squished, you see what's inside. I don't know the exact phrase, but it's a saying. Just trust me on it. Um, <clears throat> There's, there's something that happens when we're under extreme pressure where you see sometimes the ultimates of human good and sometimes the ultimates of, of human evil. Uh, so today we're going to look at, at one of those situations. Uh, if, if you got your Bible today, let's, uh, let's turn to Acts chapter 6. Um, now just a little bit of context for this passage. Um, the first followers of Jesus are, are growing. Pentecost happened uh, some time ago. And, and the growth is, is really exciting, but they're starting to come up against their first opposition. Uh, in, in chapter 4, Peter and John are threatened uh, by the religious leaders. Chapter 5, leaders of the church are arrested 
and imprisoned. And things are slowly escalating where, where people who are just having a, a good time experience the newness of the life that we find in Jesus are, are starting to come up against some really serious threats. So in chapter 6, we meet some, some new characters. Now, the apostles are, are working really hard to uh, follow Jesus' commands, take care of the poor. Uh, there's a, a faction of widows that have kind of come under the care of the early church here. And, and the, the early apostles, the, the 12, are feeling overwhelmed with, with the pressure. There's, they're starting to get, uh, people are getting in arguments. Uh, some fiery, destitute women who are at each other's throats. Doesn't that sound like a party? My goodness. So in chapter 6, the apostles are like, oh my goodness, we can't deal with this. We're going to get some fellers. They're going to come help us out. And, and this is where we meet a, a new character. Um, his name is Stephen. Uh, he's described as a man of good repute. Uh, and he's, he's put in, under the employ, under the, the authority of the apostles to, to help manage this really challenging situation. So this is where we, we pick up. Now, Stephen's a pretty, pretty solid dude. And uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 8, things start to get a little rowdy. So Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia, Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face, saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So, Here's your boy, Steve. He is super solid. He's doing, like, really good things. And then we have all these false accusations rise up, accusing him of blasphemy, which is a a pretty serious crime in that context. Um, And he has this opportunity. In in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest says, "Are, are these things so? Did you do it? And Stephen has this great opportunity to be like, no, dog. I don't know. Just trying to relate to kids here. Um, <laughs> he has this fantastic opportunity to say no. He has this fantastic opportunity to, to speak up and defend himself. And one of the most amazing things that we encounter in chapter 7, now I recommend you go and, I recommend you read the whole Bible. It's pretty good. But chapter 7 is a pretty incredible passage, and we're not going to read it today because it's long. But Stephen takes this opportunity Instead of defending himself, he defends Jesus. It's a pretty crazy situation. Uh, He speaks of the faithfulness of God, and he actually uses his circumstances, the ways in which the Jewish leaders are opposing him, actively trying to get him killed, ties it in with Israel's history, and uses it as an apologetic, an argument for the validity of the mission and identity of Jesus. (laughs) So... 
Obviously, that, that doesn't go super well for him. We pick up again, chapter 7, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Or as the kids say, he did. Man, what a way to go. That's pretty crazy. Stephen is the first of, of what we now acknowledge as uh, the martyrs of the Christian church. A martyr is a, it comes from a Greek word that just means witnessed or someone who gives a testimony. And, and in the, the first few centuries as Christianity was forming, the word became adopted to apply just to the people who gave witness to the incredible identity and love of God through their death and suffering. And it's a pretty exclusive club. Now, <clears throat> Stephen was not the first. You know, we, we read in here about uh, Saul, who's standing there collecting the garments of the people who are killing Stephen. You know, he's, he's so moved by, by this event and by a, a personal encounter with Jesus that he actually follows in Stephen's footsteps at the end of his life. Several other leaders of the church in that day follow in Stephen's footsteps, who is ultimately following in Jesus' footsteps. And, and all through the ages, we actually see this happening over and over again. If you want to get real depressed, there's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it's, uh, it's got a lot of these stories. My goodness. So, uh, in, in the early church, persecution was a, was a pretty mega problem. We've got uh, some figures who, who have these experiences where they, they pay the ultimate price for their relationship with Jesus. There's a, a famous story of a guy named Polycarp. What? What kind of name is that? I wish there was like a nicer way to pronounce Polycarp. Anyways, uh, <laughs> Polycarp is the bishop of uh, a town in modern-day Turkey called Smyrna. Um, and a wave of persecution arose in the area. Many Christians were fleeing the city. And, and he was so committed to God's call on his life in that city, he decided to stay. Uh, and, and against maybe most people's better judgment, uh, he stood until he was captured and uh, <clears throat> taken to trial. And he was asked to renounce Jesus. And, and here's a, a really famous quote from your boy Polycarp. Eighty and six years I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And he got stabbed and burnt because he refused to do something as innocuous as offering a sacrifice to Caesar. We have more stories like uh, a famous story of, of a second century, third century North African woman, uh, Perpetua and Felicity. Uh, Perpetua was a 22-year-old noble woman, and Felicity was her, her servant. Both of them were Christians. 
Uh, Perpetua is asked by her father, like, repent, recant your faith. They're going to kill you. And she says, can I call myself not other than that which I am, a Christian? Another famous quote. Uh, her, her death was, was quite gruesome, actually. She was uh, sentenced to death by wild animals in a public place, uh, torn to shreds, and the people who survived that were killed with a sword. Um, the, the account actually says that when she was in this horrific context, she showed no fear even until like the very end. And she was actually encouraging everyone who was literally being slaughtered in that moment, saying, fear not, have faith, stand firm. Uh, a pretty crazy kind of situation. Now, through the ages, there are countless others who've met deaths uh, as they refused to recant, as they stood for Jesus. Uh, even in the last century, we have the examples of, uh, is anyone familiar with the Ten Boom family? Uh, there's a famous book called The Hiding Place about a family that stood against the tyranny of, of Nazi Germany. They smuggled Jews in and out of uh, Germany to safety, and, and several members of the family met their deaths. There's a famous uh, pastor and theologian, also from Germany, named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood again against the tyranny of, of Nazi Germany. He paid for it with his life in a concentration camp. Um, and, and even in the past few years, 2015, we had a situation where there were uh, 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians uh, <clears throat> who were killed by ISIS for refusing to recant their faith. So martyrdom is a, is a pretty big deal. The, the North African theologian Tertullian um, went so far as to say, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In that there was a group of people in the early days of the formation of Christianity that took their faith so seriously that they were willing to die for it. And this seriousness was so inspirational that it transformed other people's lives. They looked at these figures and said, there must be something to this Jesus. I think one of the, the big challenges for us today, though, um, I mean, Lord willing, most of us are probably not going to get slaughtered in a coliseum by a bunch of wild animals. Uh, fingers crossed. I, I don't think that's going to happen for most of us. Um, we, we live in, in a period of, of like, enormous safety. We, we're allowed to uh, celebrate our faith publicly. Um, what do, what do we do with this story about these people who were forced to like make this life or death decision? Jesus and you die or renounce him and you live. How do we apply this to our lives? Like it seems a little bit extreme. And, and I think one of the ways that we do it wrong uh, is we ask the question, well, if, if I had a gun to my head, would I say yes to Jesus? Um, especially those of us who've been in, in maybe an evangelical context for a while. That, that's a, a question that I think comes up quite a bit. If, if I had a gun to my head, would I say yes to Jesus? Um, the problem with a question like that is it's a little impractical. Uh, it's, it's not something that we can take through our day and be like, gun to my head, Jesus? No? It's like, what do you do with that? How does that affect the way that you live your life? I think 
the response that we need to have to these uh, stories is not the question, would I die? It's the question, do I live? Does that make sense? We're not asking, would I die for Jesus if I were in that context? We're asking, do I live today? Does he have me? Am I possessed by Jesus, if you will? And when you look at, at each of the figures that we talked about, you know, starting with, with a guy like Stephen. Stephen's life, his testimony, it, it didn't start with a gun to his head, you know? His uh, <clears throat> testimony to the, to the power and the wonder of what God had done for his people, it didn't just begin in this extreme moment of crisis where he's brought on trial and he stands up and testifies. It's the same thing with, with the Apostle Paul. Paul gives his life for his faith, but his testimony doesn't start, you know, in 63 or 64 AD in Rome. His, his testimony starts a, a whack of years earlier, and, and he's living out a life that has already died for Jesus. We find the same thing with, with Polycarp, the example that we read. Polycarp has been doing this thing for 84 years. That is more than 80 years, which is more than most of us are old. Wow. Thanks, Bev. <laughs> and we look at, at these figures like the Ten Booms and, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. They have been working for years. They had laid their lives down for Jesus long before the question was asked. And I think when we, when we read these stories of martyrdom, when we hear these tales of, of people paying the ultimate price for their faith, uh, we need to de-abstractify this. We need to take it out of the stratosphere, bring it into our lives today. Do I currently live for Jesus? Not would I someday. Do I today? And that's, that's the call. And the fact of the matter is, we will not die for Jesus if we don't currently live for Jesus. You know, God forbid if we are in a situation where the gun's to our head, you can answer today what you're going to do by looking at your life today. Pretty crazy. Now, uh, I, uh, I spent a lot of time praying about what to, to speak about today. Um, and, and I know this is New Year's and a very jolly time for all. Um, the thing, the, the reason why we're talking about this today is, is because this is something I've just been getting nailed on. Um, is I've been looking at my own life, and I've seen all kinds of different agendas that I'm following. You know, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Um, we're in a season of getting some nifty tax returns. <laughs> like, my goodness, if you want to see where your heart's at, check out your tax return. <laughs> where, where's our treasure? Let's, let's look back on, on our year and ask where our time has gone. How have we passed each day? Like, who are we living for? 
And, and when we, we look at these examples of, of martyrdom, of, of these really extreme cases of people put under duress and they're forced to make a, a do-or-die decision, I think we need to be, in our context, a little bit more inspired by what came before, by the fact that these were people faithfully serving Jesus year after year, day after day, their entire lives devoted to him. You know, Jesus... Uh, make several references to, to the cost, to the value of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, at one point, he compares it to a field where a man finds a great treasure, and he sells everything he has for the sake of, of the kingdom of heaven. It's something that is so captivating that people throw their lives at it. And, and I think... For me, the, the big challenge, um, it's not so much this, this guilt-laden, I'm not doing enough for Jesus. I, I think that's kind of our tendency. You know, like we, we hear about like <clears throat> these, these people who've, who've given it all for Jesus. Like they've, they've given it all away. It, it's such an extreme, like amazing thing and we're inspired. It's like, oh, I got to do that. I got to be better. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if anyone, anyone kind of get that little guilty tinge, tinge their heart. I, I think that's an a, a unhelpful response. Um, feeling ashamed for not being spiritual enough is one of the least effective ways to become spiritual. Can I get an amen? Woo! <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> what we see in the lives of the people who died for Jesus is that they live for Jesus and they live for Jesus because they're absolutely captivated by Jesus. And, and that's why, you know, we're talking about this today. Is he worth it? I think that's, that's the big takeaway question for us. You know, we, we have this story of Stephen at the very end of his life. Uh, it said that his face was shining. And he's looking up to heaven and on... Even, even in his final breath, he's proclaiming the identity of Jesus, sees him at the right hand of God. He's completely enveloped. He's enraptured, I guess that's a, a word, in, in the presence of God. From, from the beginning of his life to the end, Jesus is right at the center of his vision. And, and I think my question here is, is Jesus worth it to us? Is he valuable enough to be the final word on our lips as we pass? Is he valuable enough to be the, the name that we speak when we wake up in the morning and the name that we speak when we go to bed? Is he valuable enough to shape our everyday decisions? Is he valuable enough to shape who we love? Is he valuable enough to make us get out of our comfort zone? To make us do something different with our money? Is he valuable enough? And, and the fact of the matter is, if, if the answer, I, I think, if we're going to be honest, for a lot of us, the answer is no. It, our vision of Jesus is far too small to live like that. I think when we look at the inconsistencies in our life, when we look at the ways in which he isn't, 
the name that's on our lips when we wake up, when we go to bed, when we're standing, when we're sitting, is that our, our vision of Jesus is not a vision of the Jesus of the Bible. It's not a vision of the Jesus that captivated the hearts of thousands and thousands and thousands of believers who gave their lives for him. And these people got a glimpse of something that we need today that drove them to dedicate their entire lives to serving him even to the very end. So how I'd like to close today, um, I'm a big believer in the idea that uh, we don't find Jesus as much as he finds us. Um, that if we want to get a, a good picture of what he's like, we need to invite him through his Holy Spirit to show us, to give us a new revelation that's going to take us into this new year with power, not with a whimper. So, so let's close in prayer together. Um, the first thing that I'd like us to do is just spend a moment in silence. Let's reflect on our last year and, and let's ask ourselves this question, is Jesus big enough for me to give my life to him? Let's just take a moment. Jesus, has, as we approach this time of reflection, um, this time of, of new beginnings, uh, we recognize that many of us have fallen short. Many of us have thrown you uh, on the wayside of our lives. Really, in our, in our hearts, we don't think you're a big deal. Um, we have illusions about who you are. We, we have dwarfed you in our hearts. And we can't afford to live like that any longer. Jesus, as, as we uh, approach 2019, we invite your Holy Spirit to give us new revelation, brand new revelation. Show us the face of the Jesus that's worth dying for. Don't let us live in squalor. Don't let us live with this tiny, pea-sized view of Jesus that doesn't have an impact on our lives. I ask for each and every person in this room that, that you would just do a, a tremendous work of opening eyes, opening ears, opening hearts, that, that the vision of you that we've never seen before would become reality that we would be captivated by you maybe for the first time. And that we take this, this fascination with the amazing Jesus that's worth dying for and we let that run our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. Great.